Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rise for Racial Justice, the podcast. I'm Bernetta Parson, and on this show, we bring the finest thought leaders in the anti-racist and education realm with the goal of sharing resources for liberation, transformation, consciousness raising, and anti-racist action. Today, we have two incredible guests. Dr. Meredith Madden is an anti-racist feminist scholar activist. She holds a PhD in Cultural Foundations of Education and Masters in Public Policy and Urban Education. She is a former middle school educator and holds social justice youth dialogues. Currently, Meredith is an assistant professor of education at Utica College and is founder of Equity Prof, where she is a K-12 education consultant. Dr. Kimberly Williams-Brown is an assistant professor of education and Africana studies. She holds a PhD from Syracuse University in Cultural Foundations of Education. She is a Black scholar and mother and founder and director of the Intergroup Dialogue Collective to enhance racial literacy, raise critical consciousness, and make changes in communities and society. I want to welcome you both to the show. Great to have you here. So I will start with Kim. Tell me a little bit about what led you into racial literacy and dialogue work. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor to be here with you and with Meredith, whom I've known for a really long time. It's just amazing to be in this space with both of you. I think I've always had an eye for justice, even when I was a kid. I think back then I thought about it as being fair and uh, how you went about doing what was right. And so primarily for me, that meant I saw the way in which girls were being treated differently and what I thought was unfairly in my church community. And so although I didn't have the tools to address it in that moment when I was a child, I was definitely, it was definitely a part of my consciousness that something was happening in that space and that I needed to do something about it. And so I would say my feminist consciousness was um, probably not awakened until my time in college or post-college, but my Black consciousness absolutely came to be in college because as an immigrant from Jamaica, as a Black woman going to a predominantly white college in uh, rural West Virginia, it became really clear to me. Um, that I had to figure out what it meant to exist in this Black body uh, when I showed up in that space and folks were like, you're Black, you're hanging out with us. Okay, let's figure out what that means. Um, And so Black consciousness was certainly raised. I think in graduate school, I was really introduced to feminist theory and it's become the way I'm oriented. So do a lot of um, intergroup dialogue work, uh, but that, that work happens through a deeply feminist lens, looking at Black feminist thought, transnational feminist studies, really thinking about what does it mean to be Black across the diaspora? What does it mean to be a person of color in multiple communities? And so for me, the, the journey to this, to this work, to doing this work in community has been multiple. It's been decades long. It's continuing. Um, it, it's not something that started and then has stopped. I, I don't feel like I'm ever in a process of arrival. I feel like I'm always in a process of constant change and evolving. It's, it's my efforts to create literacies across multiple communities about what it means to live in this world and to have justice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Meredith, what brought you to the work? Thank you again, Penny, for the, the introduction. And also, uh, Kim, it's so wonderful to be here with you. 
So for me, as someone who identifies as a white woman, I was raised in predominantly white spaces and went to a predominantly white K-12 education system. And so for me, I learned about things like identity difference. I learned that there was uh, differential treatment across identity. And that wasn't something that I wasn't thinking about, you know, from a young age, especially in kind of the home curriculum of my home and what my family and my parents and uh, grandmother were sharing with me and teaching me. But it really took until I went to college and was a sociology major and started to think about this critical consciousness. I had a sociology professor who very much, you know, was the first person to teach me about what it meant to have a social responsibility. And so I started to have my consciousness raised definitely in sociology spaces. But really it was after that, when I spent you know, a good you know, 10 years, a little under 10 years in the nonprofit sector. And then in my late you know, 20s, early 30s, I went into teaching and education. And it was really at that time where I started to see um, differential treatment, especially with access to resources. I was a special education teacher, middle school, and teaching across two different spaces really helped me see that this isn't just something you're reading about in a sociology class or taught to care about if it crosses your path, but you are... Uh, invited into the firsthand experiences of people and to bear witness. Absolutely, Meredith. When you were talking about understanding a little bit more once you got to college, then certainly in your work, I think that's not a very uncommon thing to happen, especially for white women who are teachers. Yeah. As Meredith, that, that, that portion of Meredith's story also struck me because in my own education, um, it was very white dead men, right? I could tell you all about Marx, Kant, Durkheim, Weber, but I had no clue about Mills, anyone who was a person of color, like no sociologist of color. And I think about the teachers that I work with often who have no access to social justice education as part of their curriculum. And I'm often reminded of my own education and the way in which it, it could have been such a radically different education, but it wasn't. It was very steep in whiteness and, and Eurocentric uh, ways of seeing the world. Right. And Meredith, did you want to say something? Yeah, thank you. And just in listening to Kim, I'm, I'm reflecting back on one, I think, commonality Kim and I share is that we identify as feminist in terms of our scholarship, but also in terms of our, pra our praxis. And it's making me think that back to that moment in the sociology classroom and the the opportunity lost when you don't include, for instance, feminist sociologists. And as I completely agree with Kim there, um, just thinking about the opportunities that could have been gained in those spaces with those different perspectives and, and points of view. I mean, when I went to Syracuse and was reading the works of folks who are in society right now doing this work, you know, to be reading about their histories, their stories, and the work they do now just has brought me into the work in a completely different way that, that I appreciate. Great, great. Okay, so I, I know that you both work in the K through 12 world, but I wanted to ask you two different questions. So for Meredith, I wanted to ask you on the micro level, since we're talking about sociology, I guess. <laughs> So I know that you do social justice youth dialogues. Can you describe what those entail and what have you learned from doing them? Thank you so much for that question because those dialogues really became kind of a grassroots type of work anchored in my college classroom. So it, 
was really important for me to draw on former Chancellor Nancy Cantor at Syracuse University, her idea that scholarship should be put into action. And so I always had an action component, which very much is also part of an intergroup dialogue classroom as well. So for us, working together with education students, we thought, what would it mean to take what we're learning in a social justice education classroom and bring it to local schools? So we developed workshops that were really youth narrative dialogue anchored to a social justice uh, topic and brought those into different schools in the area. And I'm located in uh, central New York. So from that grew a greater interest. And I started to do these kind of as pop-up events at um, a few local libraries. So it might've turned into a viewing of the hate you give followed by a critical dialogue on that and what students took away from it. And then anchoring it to their own experiences or what they're not experiencing, but thinking about. One thing that I hear often from students that has really stuck with me is the fact that students know, for instance, that in New York State schools, you're not supposed to be a bully or a bystander to bullying, but they see moments in their classrooms that are microaggression moments, racial microaggressions, for instance. And so we have students who are noticing these things and wanting to know why the adult in education spaces aren't disrupting you know microaggressions when they hear them and I really think we're just at a time where youth are not willing to compromise anymore and expect expect uh, that their teachers create and sustain just spaces. I love that idea I don't think you know when I was a young person it would not have even occurred to me to do it and they are really brave. I, I think they are I think uh, I feel like what you just said, Penny, I hear from other people that their consciousness is so raised right now in ways that many of us didn't experience until college, uh, in part just because of, you know, events in society and also social media and just the access to knowing, you know, what's going on. Right. Yeah, it, it's a good thing. I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so, Kim, I wanted to ask you on the macro level, how has the current political climate affected your work with school districts? Um, that's a big question. <laughs> that's why it's macro. Um, I think, right, the political climate right now is so interesting because as Meredith brought up and as the conversation that just preceded this one, as you've been having it, there's so much consciousness raising that's already happened. There are so many people who are um, aware, right? That racism is actually a thing in the US, right? I feel like we're past this post-racial era that was ushered in with the Obama presidency, right? I think we've moved past that. Um, like, I, I mean, I don't think we were ever really in it, ever, although some people never, thought it. <laughs> never, ever. There was never such a thing, not yeah. in this country. Um, I don't know that we'll get there. I think that's right. The big goal, but we certainly were not there. Um, but people certainly thought that. I mean, people really held on to that belief that we were in a post-racial America because we'd elected our first um, Black president. A whole myth. But now we're in a space where people don't believe that so much anymore, right? The average person uh, might say that there is uh, racism that exists. Even though there's this consciousness raising amongst young people and, and among some older folks, there's this way in which people are still distancing from that, right? So even though there's this huge consciousness uh, that's happening in many, many spaces, and I think that the, 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 the hyper visibility of 
uh, Black death, right, which, which happens frequently in our country, has definitely awakened a lot of people's consciousness. And there's been protests and people have been able to access that and to see it on TV and or to, to, to be a part of local movements. And so all of that's happening. But at the same time, there is this ideological war that we're in in the U.S. And the war is absolutely along racial lines. And so when you also think about that, the political climate is really violent. It is tense. When I think about it, right, when I close my eyes and I imagine like if I could draw a picture of what's happening right now, I see lots of reds, just lots of strife and lots of violence. And so it's just a really interesting moment, a really difficult moment to be in. Um, because it feels like in this moment, how can we be doing this work? What kind of difference can we make when people have been, people have been called to their ideological camps and they're there and they're camping out? <laughs> there is no meeting in the middle. There's no coming, right? So a place of consciousness. One such example um, for me is, is the work that I do in um, school districts and a particular district that we've been working with who recently had a school board meeting and the issue was around masks, but then very quickly it became around race, right? It became about race. And so very quickly they started to talk about, yeah, you're, you're, you're taking away our kids' rights. They should not be masked. And also we're coming for CRT, clearly just naming that, right? So these ideological camps that people are just staked in. And so, right, when you think about all the things that are happening in this political climate, I'm, I'm really happy about the work that Meredith is doing. I am happy about the work that still happens on college campuses. And I'm really grateful for the work that I get to do with Colette and Meredith and, and other folks, right? Because I do see a way in which things are shifting in those spaces. But I think on a lot, and, and other lots of people are doing this work, right? I think, I really think a lot about the work that Kimberly Crenshaw is doing with the African-American Policy Forum, just, just the literacy that's happening in that space and the connectedness that's happening around all of that, that's been really encouraging. And that's a part of why I appreciate intergroup dialogue as a pedagogical um, strategy and as a methodology, because I think what it does is it really teaches people to think across difference, to really look across at each other and to think about the ideological camps that we've been groomed to be in and to begin to really have conversation, honest conversation, to come to a place of building community, right? To be able to see each other as human, but to also understand that the ideology is not, it doesn't help us move forward as a society. So I think the political climate is really, really difficult in this moment. I think it's really difficult as a person on the street or a person in schools to really understand where you stand, right? You can't know by looking uh, at someone which camp they're going to be a part of and if you have allies or if you don't have allies. And so in that way, it makes it really difficult to do this work on the ground locally. But I do think that there are spaces and there are movements and there are people who continue to work. And I think that gives me hope in terms of the political camp, right? And, and in terms of CRT and what's happening with CRT, I really think the, the work that um, lots of scholars are doing and activists um, to really explain what CRT is, where CRT comes from, and how CRT comes to 
allow all of us to understand what racism is and how racism shows up um, in society and in places like schools. I think that movement, that work has been really important in the last year or so, as there's been this energy around CRT, which has been around for a really long time, right? Which is super unfortunate. Okay, we are going to take a little break here and we'll be right back with Dr. Williams Brown and Dr. Madden. If you are interested in learning more about racial literacy, please check out the Rise for Racial Justice website at riseforracialjustice.org. Rise for Racial Justice is committed to preparing, supporting, and empowering young people, families, teachers, and schools to rise for racial justice. If you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. We are back with Dr. Kimberly Williams-Brown, who is an assistant professor of education and Africana studies at Vassar College and founder of Intergroup Dialogue Collective, and Dr. Meredith Madden, who is assistant professor of education at Utica College and founder of Equity Prof. So you are both parents. What does it mean to you as parents to be working in anti-racism and intergroup dialogue? Meredith, why don't you start? Thank you. So I am a, a parent. I have a son who is 15 years old. I have thought long and hard about what it means to raise a young man who is white. And as we think about the ways that our parenting practice reflect our values, just making sure that my practice is reflecting what I value, which is um, social justice and I value equity. And so making sure that I was parenting him in a way to make sure that his consciousness was raised early, not waiting until college for that to happen early so that he could have a critical lens to see the world and understand his identities and understand also how he can be you know, an, an agent of change um, in ways that are uh, productive and in ways that do not cause harm. So that's been one thing. The other piece of that uh, has been the intergroup dialogue. I've really then brought in dialogue when I can with my son. And I think in doing so, I at this point, I, I'm seeing how that has positioned him, especially in you know social media spaces, to have his own dialogues with others. It's also positioned him to crave more spaces for that, for instance, in education, uh, and to look for that. So I think one of the most important things I've taken away from my mentors is one, you need a language to name experience. So knowing that giving the language is key for when you're parenting and then also giving dialogue skills so that that's key. And then also getting young folks your own that you're parenting or others who you just have a deep sense of care for and responsibility for to see that ways that they can be actionable for the good of society. So those are things that I would say become the the legacy right now of my parenting approach. And uh, I'm hopeful that as parents talk about the ways they're parenting, you know, as a, a white parent in a predominantly white community, that I can share resources with other parents and, and hope that'll be for good and for justice. That's beautiful, Meredith, for your son to have that kind of awareness very young, I think is, is really important. 
I agree. I agree. I think for me, um, so I have two young children um, who are Black children in this world. Um, my daughter, Zuri, is turning five at the end of this month. And my son's a year is one. He just turned one. And so and, when I- And I just want to say one yeah, little thing because yeah. some people may have heard her That's <laughs> in the <right>. background <laughs> during That's this right. recording. <laughs> as I've desperately tried to have her not interrupt. But as we learned during the pandemic, that is not possible. But I, you know, for me, it's it's been, um, first of all, I grew up in- a space where children were really seen and not heard. I mean, my, you know, the generation that my parents came from really believed that and really thought it was a good way to raise children, um, to have manners and to, to be good citizens in the world. And so I think in my own parenting, really trying to do something that is different. And that has been sometimes difficult, you know, when I'm, when I'm in relationship with my parents and, and their generation, but I think also that it lends itself really well to the um, space that is the, uh, the, the, the social justice racial space. I was going to say, take care of her, Kim. Take care of her. <laughs> um, in, in the meantime, Meredith, what is your vision of Equity Prof? Here, so I had been doing these, uh, like I said, these community education uh, workshops and classes and kind of a kind of a very grassroots model like at libraries and partnering with teachers who are interested in bringing them to schools or uh, in my home with friends and I really really felt like I kept hearing a call especially from from teachers is that they wanted to be more prepared to do this work with their students and then also the things that I've been naming that I've been aware of or learned about from youth like that they want to talk about these things and they're going to raise these questions um, and you know what I'm witnessing for my own son, that teachers are aware of that also. And they, there are many teachers who want to be better prepared. So Dr. Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do better. So I look at this, uh, the equity prop as um, a way to position people to know better. Again, I, the only reason I feel like I know better, honestly, is, is the culmination of the people in my life who were generous with their knowledge and their resources to share that with me. And so that has positioned me to be able to share with others. Um, so the equity prof, it, the vision is that I work with the schools and specifically with teachers to help prepare teachers to meet those moments in their classrooms. And again, to not reproduce or sustain, you know, legacies of harm that are rooted in the isms, right? So racism, sexism, and, you know, many other forms of oppression but that really disrupt the, what's been happening, disrupt those legacies, those colonial legacies, and, and give a new, a new space for what education can look like that is truly democratic, that is liberatory, and that is transformative. So the vision is, is that over time, educators will have access to resources and to expand their own you know, literacy around social justice and equity, and then be prepared to do the work in their classrooms. Uh, we know that the, as educators, we may never see our legacy. So while I have this vision, all I can hope is that the legacy will trickle down. And then what happens is the students who get access to those teachers that are better prepared, just have a completely different way of learning and a way of being in society. I love that. And I hope that somehow you do get to see that. It would be wonderful to see 10 years down the road what happens with those students. So 
Yeah, that's that's my my hope for you. Thank you. And, and I should just pause to take a moment to also acknowledge that this work is, you know, in, in community with so many others who are doing the work, who have been doing the work. When I think about Kim herself, who's been doing this work for so long, when I think about Colette Can and Rise for Racial Justice and the work that has been happening there for so long, you know, it is a privilege for me to be able to think of myself in a coalition with other folks in this community doing this work. And that is really one of my biggest life's privileges. Great. And Kim, do you want to, you want to finish up your thought about being a parent doing yes. this work? <laughs> yes. Um, there are real moment there, <laughs> real parenting <laughs> moment. Um, it is hard, right? Um, I think to be a parent of little kids uh, and to be in many communities and really trying to do quite a bit. But for me, I, I really do it for them, um, having two back children who will be my legacy, I'm just really wanting to create a better space and a better world for them so that they're not misunderstood in the very short time that my daughter who's almost five, has been in school, it's been super clear to me, just all the ways in which school will um, reify and continue to marginalize her. And right, I have the great privilege of having access to resources and, and having access and so can advocate for her. But I often think about that parent or those parents who just can't. They don't have the resources, they don't have the know-how. And so how can I create um, spaces? How can I be in schools? How can I do work that will help others do that advocacy so that the parent who can't do that advocacy, but who needs that advocacy will have their children, will have spaces that are good and that will hold them and that will love them, right? And that will see them as human, will see them as people, will not just see them as another black statistic or brown statistic or whatever statistic you want to call it, right? And so that's truly the reason I do this work. And even though on many days, it's really hard today, it's one of those days <laughs> when I'm <laughs> juggling multiple priorities and she's here with me and I'm trying to do it in the most quote professional way and really just turning <laughs> right to my own kind of feminist lens and reminding myself that this is a part of it, um, that this work has always been done in communities. It's always been done across generations. It's always been multi-generational. And so to me, that's a part of the legacy. How can she see me doing this work, hearing the words that will have probably not much meaning right now, but when she's 12, the impact of these words from this podcast, what that's going to do for her, right? The impact of being in a Zoom meeting with other folks as we're doing anti-racist work, that impact is impact that I can't begin to measure. And so for me, that's, that's the importance of the work. That's the importance of doing this as a parent. Um, so even in the moments when I'm tired, even in the moments <laughs> when I'm like, just be quiet for a second so I can get through this podcast. Um, even in those moments, um, just the importance of her being, having, being able to occupy spaces like this. And, and my son and, and all the folks I know being able to do that is just incredibly important. I, I asked Meredith about yeah. what her vision was for yeah. Equity Prof. What is your vision for Intergroup Dialogue Collective? Yeah, you know, honestly, it's, it's really similar to what Meredith said, especially the last piece of what you said, Meredith, that really resonated so much with me, being in community with folks who um, are passionate about doing this work, about working with um, teachers in schools and in communities, working with parents in schools and in communities. And for me, 
I really enjoy working with my colleagues. I really enjoy sitting in the brainstorming meetings and figuring out how we put together a curriculum that will make sense for the particular community that we're working with. Working with young facilitators who are really interested in facilitating and in doing this work, but not quite sure where to start and just doing that and seeing them blossom and grow. That to me is the vision of intergroup dialogue. It is multi-generational, it is multifaceted, it is multi-ethnic, it is all of that multiracial. And I just, I, I feel very blessed every day when I'm able to sit in communities with folks and really be able to do this work at, in any capacity, just to, to grow people's ability to, to, to understand this world, the social injustices that are in this world. But for me, most importantly, the ways in which together, how we can begin to impact that. And it's slow, it's so slow. And I think that's why sometimes people um, lose hope, but I, I have such hope because I sit in community with people doing it across coalition groups, doing it in community and with sometimes people who are not even like-minded, people who might think differently than I think, but doing it together, I think that is super energizing. And that really helps me get through every day, get through the hard moments, get through the moments when it seems like change is not possible. And so that is the vision of the Intergroup Dialogue Collective. Yeah, I really love that. I think what we see on the news all the time is the strife and the divide. But you both have a really great privilege because you do see people who are working together and figuring it out. If I could um, just respond to that for a moment, I was in a conversation with someone in the education field recently who was saying, bringing back to what Kim shared about folks who are kind of part of this anti-CRT movement and the person said, you know, there are all these people who have organized and they're showing up at schools and very much it was clear that the narrative is, is that this is like the, 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 move, the anti-CRT movement is um, this very mobilized group. And, it, and I paused and said, I want you to know that there is this large community, to your point, Penny, there is this large community of people who, who work together in the social justice you know, field and who are doing the work around you know, anti-racism, you know, education, but that is not something that everyone is aware of. So you're right, I do, I agree with you. I think it is a true privilege to be part of this community. And I have to remind myself that those are not in the community are sometimes unaware because there might not be the visibility you know, there, um, which is a whole another conversation around why there isn't the visibility. And, yeah, right, right. right? <laughs> but anyway, so it was a learning moment for me because it's very much at the forefront of my thinking and the people who I'm communicating with. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, even for me, I'm actually realizing just how many people are working towards this. I mean, I think that the people who are in this field actually have a beautiful vision of what this country can be and, and are actively working towards it. So, you know, I hope that when people hear this, they will be moved to take a class, read a book. Speaking of that, before we leave, we like to ask our guests, to share with the listeners what is lighting them up or what is soothing their soul. And, um, and so, uh, Kim? So uh, the, I, I'm reading a lot of academic texts, but I think something that is 
for me, both social and academic, that's up to interpretation. So I absolutely understand <laughs> if others don't agree with me. Um, but I'm reading a lot around Marunage. And right now I'm reading a book by Robert Neal called um, Freedom as Marunage. And to me, it's, it's, it's it really, I'm, I'm reading it because I think it will help me think about the work I do with Afro-Caribbean women, um, teachers who were recruited to this country and just the, the, the neoliberal practices around recruiting them, about, around retaining them, around using their labor, um, right? And, and really not um, just doing justice around that. And so it's really helping me think about what freedom means in that context, what it means to migrate, because one wants to have a greater sense of freedom. But also I think it, it connects to some of the conversation we've been having around what's happening in this country politically and right, what freedom means. And, and I think the, the ideological camps that I was talking about, I think there are people who think, right, that, that they are trying to think about freedom in those spaces. So anyway, I'm reading that book um, right now. And so as you can tell, it's very much on my mind, really thinking through um, these ideals of freedom and abolition and maroonage and, and what all of that means. Yeah, okay. And Meredith, what are you reading? So I am kind of always immersed in, you know, academic text, and I, I really struggle to find time to read fiction, which is like my, when I think back to childhood, like that's my first true love is fi fiction stories, and um, but I can't find the time to get back there to complete something. So I've been, I've been really reading poetry lately, um, and I, I share with folks that one of my favorite poets is Mary Oliver. And I really appreciate that in just in just a single you know page that I'm able to be brought back to things like the change of seasons and to nature. And so what her work does is it puts me in spaces, you know, um, that maybe if I'm you know working, you know, writing for a whole chunk of time and I can't get outside, then I just if I squeeze in a quick poem, I can, you know, transport myself momentarily and just feel that kind of letting go for a moment. And also she just uh, she writes things that just raise big questions for me. So my favorite quote from one of her poems is, um, tell me what is it you want to do with your one wild and precious life? And I just love that. And I just, I, I ask myself that often, like, what is it? You have this one life and it doesn't have to be so conformed, you know, to a certain way. It can be this, you know, wild and free experience. And, and what is it that I want to do? I love that poem too. Uh, and while well, I'll ask you, Meredith, what are you watching? Um, so I haven't watched anything in a few weeks, but the last thing that I watched was uh, The Chair. Uh, and it was um, of interest to me because it's set in academia. And I was pretty fascinated by how uh, it did capture some things that really resonated, you know, with me having worked in higher education. And so it was just... Uh, it was a way to kind of think about, you know, higher ed and how other folks now will have access to thinking about it. Um, but that's that's my most recent thing that I've watched. I watched it too. I think anybody who's been in higher ed has had to watch it. It feels like yeah. it's a necessary thing. <laughs> yes, for sure. And Kim, what are you watching? The same. <laughs> I've definitely watched the chair. Um, although recently I heard some uh, a few faculty members talking, they were like, I was so triggered. I couldn't watch any more of it. I was like, oh my goodness, here we go with the analysis um, of it. Uh, but I, I liked it. I, you know, there's of course things that you can always critique. It's Hollywood, it's made for TV, you know, right. obviously it's going to be commercial in some ways, but um, I, I liked it. 
I thought it was um, pretty good. I also um, watched uh, probably right before, maybe right after that, uh, Never Have I Ever, which is like a teen <laughs> drama, honestly, but I really loved it. The first episode I wasn't sold on, um, but the other episodes, I just, I thought they were well done. I think for me, I was really attracted to the immigrant story as part of that. I was really attracted to the mother-daughter relationship, um, you know, just the struggles around being a parent um, and being a teenage child, right, and coming into your own. Um, so anyway, I, I, I loved that. And so I just finished it and it really surprised me. Then what are you listening to? So I, I listened to a lot of um, This American Life, although I have to say with the, the, the onset of the semester, I've been behind um, about two weeks in my listening um, to that. But This American Life um, is, is one of my favorite uh, podcasts. Um, the Wolf to Work podcast is one of my favorites, and I love the Therapy for Black Girls. All right. And Meredith, what are you listening to? So um, recently with the start of the semester, I, I asked all my students to share like two links to songs that they wanted on a classroom playlist. So I've been organizing those onto a Spotify playlist and, and listening, you know, as I go along, I, I don't know half of the, the bands and I joke with them that in my mind, I think I'm still like a college student, but I'm very far removed. Um, <laughs> in terms of age, uh, but that's just been, that's been really interesting to see uh, the choices of students and to, it, it's always a little bit of a learning process about who they are um, and what what's resonating with them. So that's always, that's been interesting. So no specific artist there, but um, just listen to a variety of, of music and thinking about my students um, and know, they know that these will be played in the, in the class and thinking about, um, what provoked them to make the make certain choices for what they would find either comforting or engaging. Um, so that's been great. And I, I, I try to tell people where I can that there's this group um, on the West Coast called the Linda Lindas. And they're a, a younger, uh, younger group uh, with powerful uh, lyrics in their songs. And again, this, this goes back to um, really what inspires me are the narratives of youth and how those come out through things like music. I think it's great to, you know, amplify youth voices. So the Linda Lindas, I think are, are a group that folks should definitely check out. I, I've heard, I, I had to look up the Linda Lindas cause I heard the name and I was like, that's such a great name. And looked into who they were and what they were singing about and again right it's this generation of young people who are much more socially aware and saying their truth so yeah they're, they're, I, I agree they're an amazing young group um, <laughs> well thank you to Dr. Kimberly Williams Brown and Dr. Meredith Madden for being here I appreciate hearing your stories and definitely taking out the time in your busy schedules to to talk to rise for racial justice thank you, thank you thanks so for much. having me I was, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation so take care right. absolutely thank you thanks for having me also it's great to, to um, be in conversation with you kim as well as penny thank you and make sure you look for the book that kim and meredith are co-authoring with colette can called teaching k-12 communities how to talk about race lessons from the field I'm sure it will be a great resource for teachers who are looking to increase their racial literacy. And I invite you back 
for our next episode when we continue the conversation about anti-racism and education on Rise for Racial Justice, the podcast. <laughs>